Hey there, welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonathan Edwards, Pure and Simple Bible.com. And I'm really thankful to have this opportunity to continue in a Bible discussion about a book that my dad wrote called A King in His House. And we're discussing the life of David, the Davidic covenant, which is on par with a lot of other really important covenants in the Bible, and then Jesus and the title Son of David, and how it's more than just referring back that David was his great, 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 great grandfather, or however many greats, but that there's something deeply spiritual and empowering about that phrase, Son of David. So we're in a mini series. This is Part two, if you haven't listened to part one, you really need to go back and listen to the previous episode first. So pause this and go back and listen and then come back to this one next. Let's jump back into the conversation, shall we? God is God of wrath and he will punish sin and he will punish his enemies. But at the same time, God is also gracious. And when people, his enemies do turn to him, he he will forgive and he will extend mercy. And so this is another one of the characteristics that David possesses that helps us to see that he was a man after God's own heart. He wasn't perfect, as we know from a lot of stuff that happens in his life, but he had this spirit about him, this gracious spirit, this this forgiving spirit of others on occasions. And that helps us to, that helps us, I think, to see the, the coming of Christ. You know, we're not getting into this yet, not jumping ahead too much. But David is is a type of Christ. And as we go through this story, we need to kind of remind ourselves that all some of these events that happen in these stories illustrate the fact that someone greater than David's coming. Right, right, exactly. And something you just said in there, you know, David wasn't perfect. Um, I think just because of the limits of, of what this recording is, we're not going to get to discuss every detail about David's imperfection. But it's pretty obvious during his kingship that he's not a perfect man. I mean, David is guilty of some vile sins uh, in the, the his his uh, relationship with Bathsheba, where he ends up orchestrating the murder of her husband. The way that he's uh, preferential towards Absalom over his other sons that leads to a civil war where he's almost killed and. Uh, Several of his children or his sons are are killed. Um, there's a lot in here where David isn't portrayed as as really the ideal person. I, and people, it's probably a tragedy that I'm I'm going to gloss over all of that so much. But towards the end of David's life, <clears throat> there's a, a time when he does evil, and. Uh, He's asking for a, a census, and then there's a lot there about why he asked for the census. But um, in this moment where he he is able to repent, and in all of those episodes, you might want to comment on this, Dad, actually, he, he repents. And we find that part of his being a man after God's own heart is that his, his willingness to hear truth and to repent of it. But there's a time specific towards the end of his reign in 2 Samuel 24 where uh, you bring out the idea that David is willing to die for the people. What what's going on there, briefly, and how does you know his willingness to die? How does that highlight him as a shepherd king? 
As you mentioned, David had come up with this idea that he wanted to do a census of Israel, to take a, a poll, I think, of his fighting men. We don't know why. You know, a lot of reasons have been given. Second Samuel chapter 24 and in First Chronicles, you have the parallel account of it. In one passage, it says that that David or that God sort of got David to take this census. And another one, it seems that the devil is the one that influenced David to take this census. The, the truth of the matter is, is that probably God in his, his will allowed that to happen and allowed the devil to do it. Anyway, he takes this census and God is angry with them. And God basically says, uh, you're going to be punished for this but I'm going to give you an option. You get an option of what you want. So many years of uh, this problem or or three months of this or, or three days of pestilence. Well, David David takes three days of pestilence. And the Bible says that, uh, that a, an angel of some kind comes down and begins to slay the people of God. And 70,000 people are killed after about three days. And the angel finally comes to Jerusalem. And of course, David has David has repented. He has said, I've sinned, and he realized he's made a big mistake, and he's sorry for it. And then David says this, when, when he saw the angel that had stopped in Jerusalem and stopped from striking the people, he says this in verse 17 of 2 Samuel 24, Surely I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. In other words, David is saying, take me. I'm the one that made the mistake here. Punish me. Take my life. He's willing to surrender his life, to lay down his life for the people. He volunteers to die for the people. So I think it's a great time in David's life. He's made a tragic mistake. But at the same time, he comes back with true repentance and with this great big heart that he has, his love for the people of God, he says, take me instead of these people. Mm. So he's willing to die for them. Yes. Um, and that, I don't, I, I spoil things, Dad. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm here sitting here trying not to give it up. But, you know, this is what you're going to be comparing to Jesus as shepherd king, a defender, a uniter, extender of grace, and volunteering to die. So you, you said it earlier, so I'll kind of repeat that. We should be thinking about, um, or there should be like messianic shadows in, in these different character traits of David, right? That, that uh, these things are pointing towards something bigger than him. That's right. And remember, Jesus himself even taught that in Luke chapter 24. He said that the things... The things in the Old Testament point forward to me. So as, as you read the Old Testament, keep the idea that Christ is in the shadows. And these things that are happening don't just happen coincidentally. They're not simple little interesting stories that are entertaining to read, but they are stories that are a part of a bigger picture. And that picture is the coming of Christ. And so especially as you read the story of David, Keep in mind that David, the life of David, points forward to Christ. David is a type of Christ. Now, not in everything. You know, don't get carried away. 
we've already seen all the bad stuff that David has done, and that certainly doesn't point forward to Christ. But this gentle side, this sacrificial side, this humble, obedient, loving side does point forward to Christ. Yeah, yeah. Now, I guess a final thing in this gentle side that you're talking about here is David's last days. And he does, there's several things that David does in his last days. But David wanted to build a, um, a temple to God. The The Ark of the Covenant is still in a tabernacle. It's like a tent. And David, um, because of his love for the Lord, has this burden. He says, here I am dwelling in this house of cedar while the, uh, you know, the Ark of the Covenant dwells in this tent. Um, what, what does he, you know, ask to do and, and what is he able to do? And how does that fit into this narrative of him as a shepherd king? As you mentioned, David wanted to build the temple, but he wasn't allowed to because uh, God said that he was a man of war. He had shed blood. And so he wasn't allowed to, but God wasn't mad at him. God wasn't angry with David. In fact, he had bigger plans for David. And we'll talk about this more when we get into the covenant that God makes with David. But God did allow David to help build a new temple. He allowed David to gather the materials for the temple. So when, you know, years later, when when Saul comes along and the young man Saul is ready to build the temple, David's already prepared the way for him. David's already gathered the materials. He's raised the money. He's gathered the building materials. He even provides the plans to, to Solomon to, to build this temple. So during this time in David's life, he's older, and yet it's a very special time to him. And then some of the psalms that David wrote are especially beautiful this time because they're psalms that specifically seem to deal with worship and deal with worship in the, the tabernacle or the temple that was to come. And so David David ends his life on a happy note, a satisfied note. He's not allowed to build the temple, but at least he can gather the materials to see that it's built. And so I guess in summary um, of David's life, you know, people can read this in, in first and second Samuel. Um, and in First Chronicles as well, uh, that the shepherd king defends and unites, extends grace and volunteers to die and gathers materials for a temple. And, you know, we've, we've said it now a few times here in the past few minutes, but this is supposed to be foreshadowing. And I guess I want to just jump straight into part two of your book because you, you use part one to introduce your reader to the man but part two is about this Davidic covenant. And I think what was so special about it for me was as a Christian who lives 20, uh, you know, one centuries removed from the times of, of Jesus Christ when he walked on the earth. And um, the, I, I don't have a lot of the Jewish connection to uh, maybe people in the first century as they're learning about the Messiah. The idea of, of, being the son of David and this Davidic covenant, probably there was some electricity to it in the first century that, that it's harder for us who are removed from it. Um, whenever we're just reading, it's hard for us to maybe have that electric feeling. So maybe you could take a moment and, uh, 
you could talk about the Davidic covenant, what it is. Uh, it's in Second Samuel seven, but uh, what what's the Davidic covenant about, and how would a Jewish reader in the Gospels, you know, what would it mean for them to to understand the Davidic covenant and the Messiah? Well, the Davidic covenant, as you mentioned, is found in Second Samuel chapter seven, and it comes about because we've talked about it briefly, but I'll mention again because I think it helps sets the stage. David had wanted to build the temple. And in fact, he had called in Nathan the prophet and basically tells him his plans. I'm going to build the temple. And David or Nathan says, go ahead, do it. The Lord's with you. That night, the Lord told Nathan, you kind of jumped the gun here. I, I didn't <laughs> give you permission to do this. And right. And, all. and so he says that David is not going to be the one to build my house. But he does say, I'm going to build a house from David. Now, that's kind of a play on words. And the first house, when, when God says, David cannot build my house, it's talking about the temple. When God says, I'm going to build David a house, he's talking about a royal dynasty, a dynasty that would come from King David. And then he gives this covenant. It's not called a covenant in 2 Samuel 7, but in other passages in the Bible, it is called a covenant. And I'll just read it because it's, it's, uh, it's really the, it's the gist of what the rest of our study is all about, this covenant that God makes with David. Okay. And it says in verse, uh, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled, that is when you die, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you, your throne shall be established forever. God promises David a seed, and this seed would do certain things. Now, one of the things we need to understand, first of all, is that word seed is what we call a collective noun. And a collective noun may be singular in appearance, but it usually involves a group, like the word team. My team lost yesterday, or my team one yesterday. Well, my team is composed of individual players, but we say my team and use it in a singular sense. David's seed was a collective noun. It's singular, but it's composed of different individuals. It's composed of Solomon. Solomon was of the seed of David. Right. But also the Judean kings were of the seed of David, but more importantly, Jesus was the seed of David. And so this is a, a prophecy. It's the announcement of a, of a covenant in the form of a prophecy given to David, but it's fulfilled in different stages. It doesn't come all at one time. It begins with Solomon. Solomon actually does build the temple, but that's not the end of the promise. There's more to come. Right. And then there are the Davidic kings that come from David and Solomon, that through their genealogies, they are descendants, physical descendants of David. Now, some of them are good, some of them were bad, and that's kind of a, you know, a different story there, an entire 
you know, lesson can be made on that. But some of the kings of, of David that descended him were good. Some of them were bad. And God said that for those kings who are, are bad, he would chasten him with the rods of men and the blows of the son of men. That, that didn't happen to Jesus, but it did happen to some of those kings. And then the last part of the, the promise is that his house, his kingdom, and his throne would be established forever. And I know we're kind of jumping forward here, but we're going to see that's fulfilled in Jesus. So this, this promise, this Davidic covenant, begins with Solomon, and it goes through the Davidic kings, and it finds its fulfillment in Jesus and his reign from the throne of David as well. Dad, in your book, you make the case that uh, the Davidic covenant is a spiritual peak, and it's on par with other spiritual peaks. So again, the the people who are casually reading the Old Testament, they may not realize just how important this is to redemption history. Um, what are what what is a spiritual peak? What did you mean by that when you wrote the book, and and how does David's covenant? on par with some of these other really, really important moments? Well, these spiritual peaks are, are key moments in the redemptive plan. Now, there's one redemptive plan. God has one scheme of redemption, and he formulated that even before man's sin in the Garden of Eden. And so the Old Testament and the New Testament really describe the, the accomplishing of that plan, the, the unfolding of that plan. Well, there are certain events that happen in the Old Testament and the New Testament too that are key elements of that plan. For example, in, in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and God called them in on the carpet, so to speak, and pronounced the, the curses that would come upon each one, he made a promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And we consider this to be the first messianic promise in the Bible that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. It was a promise. Most scholars believe that this is the first promise of the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. God made a promise to Abraham, made a covenant with Abraham that through his seed, all families of the earth would be blessed. That's another key peak in this scheme of redemption. The nation of Israel being established and receiving the promised land was an important part of the Abrahamic promise. David's covenant fits in there as well. As you mentioned, I think sometimes, I don't know if we necessarily include David's covenant as an important part of, of this great scheme of redemption. We sort of overlook it sometimes, but I think it's, it's on par with all the others. It's, it's essential. It's very important. The first coming of Christ is essential. The establishment of the church is another important part of that scheme of redemption. And then the second coming of Christ for him to, to bring judgment and to take his people home to heaven, that's, that's also one of these key elements. So there, depending on how many you want to put, I don't know that there's just one certain number, but there are a few of these events that were essential in the scheme of redemption, and the, the covenant God made with David is one of them. 
Yeah, I, I like in your book, you have this illustration um, of just several connected mountain peaks. And it's a great visual for me and uh, others, if they're interested in reading the book, that this is bigger than just a story. Um, you know, there is this re con connective redemption theme. And we're we're on the mountaintop right now as David's getting this promise in Second Samuel 7. Dad, you take some time. In, in the beginning of this section, you know, part two of your book, you take some time to talk about kind of the difference in a covenant, that not all covenants are created equal, so to speak. And in fact, you know, we, we don't even use that word covenant a lot it, outside of maybe religious or spiritual language. Um, can you take a moment, just explain what is a covenant and how uh, there might be a difference between some of these covenants that we find in the Bible. Okay. A, a covenant, of course, is an agreement, obviously, between two parties. And it's where that these parties have, have uh, certain responsibilities toward each other, mutual responsibilities toward each other. Generally, when we think of a covenant, we're thinking, obviously, from a biblical point of view, and we're thinking of a covenant that God makes with his people. And there are different covenants recorded in the Bible. There's the, a covenant <coughs> called the Noah. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. The covenant that involves Noah and that God would not destroy the world by flood again. There's a covenant that God makes with Abraham. There's a covenant God makes with Israel we call the Old Covenant. There's the Davidic Covenant and there's the New Covenant. But mostly these covenants are agreements. And that involve two parties, and generally speaking, each party brings something to the agreement and makes a pledge to the other. Now, there are different kinds of covenants. There's different things stressed in a covenant. In one type of covenant, and I won't go into the detail, detail too much here, but in one kind of, of covenant, for example, the, the superior makes a promise to the inferior part of the agreement that I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. I will do for you. And so the, the inferior really doesn't have much that he brings to the, the agreement because the, the superior has, is going to do everything. Right. That's the kind that the Davidic covenant is. It's that kind where the superior, in this case God, says to David, I'm going to bless you. And from your seed will eventually come Messiah, who's going to save the world. And so David is not really put on the spot in that covenant. God is the one sort of doing the work in that covenant. But there's a second kind of covenant. And that's one, for example, where the superior makes an agreement with the inferior. And the inferior has to make sure that, that he does it to please the, the other party. This, the emphasis is upon the inferior. You've got to obey. And right. that's the kind of covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. This covenant where God said, I'm making an agreement with you. And you children of Israel, you've got to keep the covenant. You've got to obey me. You've got to do what I say to please me in this covenant. So there are different kinds of covenants. The Davidic covenant is a little bit different than the Mosaic covenant. They have some common things in general. They both involve two parties. 
making an agreement. But in one, the emphasis on one is on God, and the emphasis upon the other one is upon the people obeying God. Is that when when Abraham um, in Genesis is it chapter seventeen, wherever the Abrahamic covenant happens, and God uh, puts him in that dream state, and then he sees this vision of the Lord walking through the middle of the sacrifice, uh, and then God he has no one to I guess swear by or oath by, and so he he does it by himself that he's going to bless Abraham's seed. Uh, is that similar to the Davidic covenant, where the divine is doing the covenanting, and the the one who's inferior um, doesn't really can't bring anything really to the table? They rely completely on God. Are those comparable? I think so. I think so. That that covenant that God made with Abraham involved the coming of Jesus, and that was going to happen. God was going to make sure that happened because that was his plan of redemption. So in making that covenant with Abraham, God, in a sense, is saying, I'm going to fulfill my end, and I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and I'm going to bless your descendants. And from your descendants will eventually come the Messiah. And so in a sense, if you kind of want to say it this way, that that God is the one that's going to be doing the work in that covenant. Right. Okay. Now, even though God's doing the work in the covenant, uh, in the Davidic covenant, um, I'm curious about Psalm 89, and also just in the narrative of uh, you know First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, there does come a point when when this the seed of David, uh, the kingship gets so wicked that it, it it almost looks like the covenant's broken on both ends, and so there's like this seeming contradiction and and Psalm 89 is what you use in the book and so I'm interested in your thoughts on this where it seems like in one half of the psalm there's this blessing uh of the Davidic covenant because you know God is God and he's faithful but then there's this um conditions of David's house that it gets so bad it looks like the covenant um isn't going to survive can you Speak to that for a little bit and and why it's important for Christians to historically know that the house of David, actually, there were some speed bumps along the way. Well, going back to the original covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, one of the things that God said is that if, if your seed sins, I will punish that seed. So there, there is a potential for punishment in the Davidic covenant, not necessarily with, with obviously with Jesus, the coming of Jesus, but with some of the, the steps that take place in the middle part of that covenant. And that involved those descendants, those kings that were descendants of David. Now, God had promised in this covenant that he was going to bless his people, he's going to bless David, and through David's descendants, the people in general would be blessed. And that covenant was not going to be taken away. But like you say in Psalms 89, it gives the appearance that God has sort of washed his hands of the Davidic leaders and has allowed has allowed Babylon to come and conquer Judah, conquer Jerusalem. And so there comes a time when the Davidic lineage, as far as sitting on the throne in, in Jerusalem, stops. 
Now, you would think, oh, there's going to be this unending period of time where the, the descendants of David will sit on the throne and will rule over Israel. But unfortunately, they got so wicked that God did allow Babylon to come and to destroy them and conquer them. And so Psalms 89 is kind of written, the last part of it, with the idea of how can this happen, God? You promise that uh, your covenant that you made with David is going to last forever. Right. And it looks like now it's not in effect at all. I think what we have here is an indication that sometimes all truth is not given in just one specific passage. And sometimes new truth comes along later that helps us to understand that old truth. And God did promise that this covenant was going to be eternal. But he's what he's saying in the downfall of, of physical Israel is that it's going to be fulfilled in a different way than you think. It's not going to be fulfilled in a political kingdom. This isn't going to reach its end in the political, physical kingdom of Israel. It's going to change into a, a spiritual entity. And the Messiah, the son of David, who's going to rule on the Davidic throne, is not going to rule in Jerusalem like an earthly king. He's going to rule in a different sense, in a different way. And also God was faithful. It's just that man comes along and messes things up and thinks that he has a contradiction here. But all that happens is God is saying that uh, you have to wait and learn from me how this really is going to be fulfilled. Right. And it's going to be fulfilled in a spiritual realm and not in a carnal, physical, nationalistic kingdom realm. Yeah, and I'm I'm just a, a little bit maybe anxious to get started with talking about Jesus since he is the Messiah. And there's, I remember reading through your book and um, it was just really exciting to see that phrase, son of David, come alive in his ministry. But before we get there, um, it's not just that God makes this covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, and then God um, in Psalm 89 lets the covenant breakers know that they're, you know, you have to be faithful. There's actually the the seed of David, the covenant of David, the son of David. These, all of this stuff about um, the Davidic covenant is sprinkled throughout the prophets as well. And so you 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 get um, a, a bridge that's built from when the covenant's made into the New Testament when Jesus comes as the son of David. Can you take a, a minute or two and and just tell us about what the prophets say about David's seed and the Davidic covenant. When we think of prophets, we oftentimes think of guys that predict the future. And there there's a certain element of predictive prophecy in a prophet. But prophets, uh, prophets taught current events and they also talked about future events. That's just kind of a little background that I want everybody to understand. When we talk about the prophets of Israel, a lot of their material was current to the people of that age. And they basically were functioning as preachers, calling people back to the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. But they also foretold a time in the future when God would fulfill his plans on earth and God would give us 
the ruler that the Davidic covenant promised. And so you've got several prophets mentioned in the Old Testament. You have the ones we call the major prophets and the ones that we call the minor prophets. Major prophets aren't more important. It's just their books are longer. Isaiah right. and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. When you begin to examine these books, and I, I won't go through all the prophecies because there are several, and they're easy to find if you want to research these. The, several of them are common. You've heard them before. Isaiah, for example, is nicknamed the, the Messianic prophet. And there are several prophecies in Isaiah that specifically foretell a son of David ruling on a throne. And that's the point that I wanted to make in this chapter is that uh, I'm not dealing with all messianic prophecies because there's a whole lot of them, but I'm dealing with the ones that specifically say a son of David will do this. So Isaiah has several passages that say that. Jeremiah does as well. The uh, prophets that even came before them, Hosea and Amos, also foretell within the future this son of David would come and would be a king. And so these prophets foretell this wonderful future time when a son of David would sit on David's throne and would rule over Israel, rule over God's people. And so their role was just to, to give us more information, to give us more understanding about this time that would come. Okay. And, and so, you know, a Jewish follower uh, in the first century, um, whenever they pick up this Matthew scroll, you know, or whenever the, a copy of the Matthew scroll comes to um, their local church and, and they're going to listen to it. The opening line is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Um, I, we've talked about this uh, in our home congregation recently, so it's kind of fresh on my mind. But to someone who's listening to this program, that the son of David and son of Abraham are uh, going to be very special to that first century Bible student, whereas in the 21st century, we might um, not see it as much except for the first line to a genealogy. And hopefully, as people are listening to this podcast, they're, they're picking up on this theme. But can you just take a moment and, and talk about what it means for Jesus to be the son of David? You will have to come back next week if you want to hear about Jesus Christ as the son of David. And just like in the book, uh, this conversation has been building towards this thought of Jesus Christ as David's son and what the spiritual implications of that mean. It's fantastic. It's a great conversation. I'm so thankful that Dad was willing to record it with me, and I think you're really going to like it, so you need to come back next week for sure. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. That way that you have them coming straight to your smart device the moment that it gets released. So please do that. And by the way, if you haven't left a five-star review and you want to leave a five-star review, I'm always open to people leaving a five-star review about the podcast. I guess you can leave another one if you don't like it. But it's helpful if you do like it specifically to get this podcast into the analytics of all of the different social medias. That way, when people are searching for Bible-based content, uh, this will be one of the first responses whenever they search for it. And it's made possible by listeners like you who take a moment to leave a five-star review, 
who write out a few sentences about the things that you enjoy about the program in the uh, whatever platform you listen to it on. So if you wouldn't mind, I would appreciate it. So, okay, until next week, always remember God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you. Well, it's real.